RKO General Station in New York. In three seconds, the time exactly Once again, this radio station, with its vast programming of public service interest, brings you whoopee time in Hacha Land. Bring it up. My bunny lies over the sea. My bunny lies over the ocean. Oh, bring back my bunny to me. Bring back, oh, bring back, oh, bring back my bunny to me, to me. Hey, for crying out loud, is my microphone on? Gee whiz. Bring back, bring back. That's better. Oh, bring back my bunny to me. Them slobs out there to hear this. Well, I don't handle those idiots' names, those slobs, those fools. Okay, anytime you want to turn the mic on, you can turn it on, Bob. Uh, well, hello, friends. It's certainly good to see you once again. Why, George, there's nothing like a meeting of good friends. Have you noticed that, friends? <laughs> and I certainly am your radio friend. And I think the first thing we ought to do is to regale you with a song here from Radio Land. Do you have a little song there after you've gone, please? That's a song. You don't hit them with the... That's it. There, easy go. All right, friends. Oh, it's certainly good to see you. By George, it's... It's heartwarming. It gets me way down to the bottom of the cockles of my heart. I can just feel it warming up. The old radiator of the soul gets all heated up and steamed up. Right, George, there's just nothing like good friends meeting here on the electronic airwaves of the world, right, friends? <laughs> yes, you just sit out there, friends, and you just imagine that I'm a real close acquaintance of yours, like, oh, Johnny Carson or Zsa Zsa Gabor or all the other big people in your lives. <laughs> after you've gone, after you've gone. Away all together now, gang. Let's all sing it together. A little group singing now. After you've gone, oh yes, sirree, Bob, and left me crying. After you've gone, oh, there ain't no denying. You'll feel blue. You'll feel sad. <laughs> and let me tell you, you're gonna miss the greatest man that you done ever had. Oh, there'll come a day, and don't forget it. There'll come a day when you is gonna regret it. Someday, someday when you are, someday when you are lonely, 
Your heart's gonna bust like mine and you'll want me only. All right, that's enough of that. All right, now, okay, that's a hold it, hold it there, hold it there. Your radio friend is here. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, George, uh, would you please prepare me my salute to the mother of us all? All right, hold it there. Hello, test. One, two, three, four, eins, zwei, schwer. There we go. Very good. Very good. Mach schnell there. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, the mother of us all, there's no question about it that uh, the vast preponderance of American attitudes spring originally from the land of Richard the Lionheart. No question about it. We, we are a melting pot here. There's no doubt about it. But the pot is English. All the stuff that goes into it is just, you know, <laughs> in many ways, uh, kind of, you know, that's the ingredients of the of the oleo, the stew, that we that we simmer away in. But the pot is basically English. All them sore heads that left England years ago, they got kicked out. You know, one thing about uh, Australia. When I was in Australia, they have one one phrase. You ever been in there, Australia? About have an English uh, engineer with us tonight, and and uh, I don't know. I always get reminded. He says, "I say, I'm doing your show today." And it makes me feel kind of good, you know. And and I traveled all over Australia here about a year ago, and I found they have one one slogan. They say, "Ah, oh, governor." They say, "I might." That's the way they say, "I mighty, I mighty." You know, you know why we get along with the English? And I say, "No." I said, "Well, you know, every last one of us was kicked out, you know." And they take great pride in the fact that that all of Australia was formed by guys who were originally a penal colony, you know. They were all out of the slam just a few generations back. And they don't let you forget it. <laughs> I'll tell you. I even had it said to me by by an elderly uh, an elderly curate, uh, a gentleman of of uh, gray hair and distinguished look, you know, and and uh, he had that he had that look of the total square, you know, the kind of guy who wouldn't think any. He just wouldn't even say little. He wouldn't say damn, you know. If you you'd have to push him right to the edge of of the pit of hell to get him to say something like that. And he turned around from the back. I was in the back seat of the car, and he was sitting up in the front there, and he was wearing his dark robes. And he turned to me, so he says, well, you know, of course, we we all originally, you know, <laughs> we take great pride, you know, all that that. Uh, well, England couldn't take any of us, you know. That's why we're all here, you know. Well, all the criminal stock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, you know, I thought it was kind of funny. See, but the whole no, kind of, I can't use that on the air. So the whole, the whole thing, the whole thing that that uh, that it, it means really, in a sense, that the Australians themselves recognize the fact that they come out of England, but by the back door they were thrown out, down the stairs. And uh, <laughs> they landed in a ship, and they wound up just outside of Sydney feeding the sharks. Well, now, uh, we, in a way, have the same thing. We have the love-hate relationship, just as exactly the way all parents and sons and daughters, the relationship is always that way, the love-hate. You know, you, you love the idea of your parents, and at the same time, oh, boy, what a drag. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's the way it is with England and America. On, on the one hand, we dig America, we dig England, of course, uh, but on the other hand, there's a sneaking sensation among many of us of of a, a kind of love hate. The the best the best epitomization really of this thing was the late Colonel McCormick, a curious man, a Colonel McCormick, who uh, was the editor and the publisher and everything of the Chicago Tribune. You ever heard of Colonel Bertie McCormick? Well, Bertie McCormick uh, was was probably the most virulent 
anti-British man uh, in in America. Oh, he just constantly, uh, he just, oh boy, I'll tell you, one of the things I remember very from my, my feckless youth, do you know that there was a mayor elected to the mayoralty of Chicago? And he ran on only one thing. He ran on one platform. And it said that if the King of England ever came to Chicago, he'd hit him in the nose. That's all he ran on, and he got elected by a landslide. Now, why Chicago was all mad at England, I don't know, except that Colonel McCormick edited the newspaper there, and uh, his uh, his editorials constantly... Now, here is the dichotomy, if you can use this overused word, but here here's what was so curious about it. Uh, Colonel McCormick lived more like an Englishman than very few Englishmen have the nerve to live like. He had he had this estate outside. I remember as a kid, we'd drive past it all the time. Outside of Chicago in a town called Wheaton, Illinois. And it was truly a baronial estate. I mean baronial. It was not a big farm. It was not in the American sense an estate. He called it Cantigny or something like that. Cantigny. I believe he had... I believe he named it after a battle in World War One that he was part of and... And uh, here was this fantastic estate, and people used to go Sunday afternoon and drive past it. And once in a great while, there would be a rumor that somebody had seen the colonel himself alive. You know, the real colonel. He was mythical. He was almost mythological to the people around out there. He lived, you know, he, he had this Tribune Tower that, that towered over the city of Chicago. Uh, if you've ever been to Chicago, you know that the Tribune Tower... It has a certain peculiar neo-Chicago Gothic quality. It's neo-Gothic-y. And it stands right there by the river, and it juts up, and it really does. It has gargoyles all over it. It has these great Gothic windows. And there was always there was always a whole series, a series of myths about him, that he had this this office atop the Tribune Tower, and it was reachable only by a special elevator that had no other stops. It went right to that tower. And that was where the colonel, in his airy, his eagle's nest, looked out over Chicago and ran that whole, what they called always Chicagoland. Uh, the, the, the trib referred to that area as Chicagoland. You can't imagine New York land. Uh, you can't imagine Boston land. But Chicagoland is an entity. It really is. You'd, you'd have to live out there to know what I mean by that. And anybody who's lived out there knows what Chicagoland is. It's a, Chicago really has a whole series of towns and places all around it that gather around Chicago like tiny chickens, like hens, around this vast, enormous brood chicken. And that's Chicagoland. And it goes all the way on up through Wisconsin. It even goes on up into parts of Minnesota. Loops all the way down through the lake. Of course, all of Illinois is in Chicagoland. And it goes around the edge of, uh, of Illinois into Indiana. It includes Indiana. Dips down and gets the very tip of Ohio. And then goes all the way on up Wisconsin and, and Michigan, you see, which, which bracket the lake. That's all Chicagoland, that whole thing there. And the colonel was in charge of Chicagoland. <laughs> in fact, there are many, many people who believe that he invented Chicagoland. That if it, if it wasn't for Colonel McCormick, there'd just there'd be a lot of cities out there, you know. There'd be, there'd be just places. But they invented the phrase Chicagoland. And, and even their, their newspaper there, of course the newspaper, the Trib, was a fantastic influence out there. 
And I will give... And, oh, he always was hurt. Uh, the, he constantly was at war with the people. I don't know why I'm telling you this. This is not what I intended to do, but... But uh, it's, it's an interesting digression for people who don't know about Chicago that Colonel McCormick was continually at war with the people of the city that he lived in because they kept, uh, they kept electing Democratic mayors. And he was probably, he was the arch-Republican of all time. And, and uh, he would constantly uh, run these long editorials denouncing the current Democratic mayor as a boob and a knave, a pickpocket. A thug and an embezzler would go on and on and on, and then he would he would he would be behind, of course, whoever's running against the next candidate. You see, and the next candidate would show up. He'd be a Democrat. He'd be against him automatically, and then he would get elected. That would really bug the colonel. And the colonel, of course, always thought that the peasants were being completely. Uh, I suppose the word would be, uh, they were not. Uh, well, they they had no sense of loyalty to him. <laughs> you know, he really did. He looked upon the, the people out there as kind of his lieges, his charges, you know. Truly a baronial man. And they were constantly showing their ingratitude by continually electing guys that he didn't believe in. And, and the next week there would be this editorial. Colonel McCormick would write it. And it would be, it is with heavy heart that once again we report that in spite of all the best efforts of the great thinkers of our age, us, me, in spite of all the th good things we've done to you, we brought you Winnie Winkle, we brought you Harold Teen every day, we bring you Little Orphan Annie all the time, and we've got this great sports section, in spite of all the good things that we have done for you throughout this past year, look what you've done. Well, we will carry on. <laughs> and I we will because we are oh it was just a wild scene. And so we would drive past this guy's house. And there it would be sitting up there. Oh, it was just you could see it through the hedges. He had he had imported all the stuff from England. He had gorse bushes. We never saw gorse bushes and you know he had it all there, you know. Truly it was Winnie the Pooh's land. And it actually was. He had moors. He did not have fields. The colonel had moors. And once in a great while, you could see, give me number one, once in a great while, you could see off in the distance, off in the far distance, you could see... Hi, George, it's the colonel himself. <laughs> He's wearing his hunting coat, of course. And uh, his groom is by his side. And he's riding his favorite hunter, Winston. What a what a scene that was! And every uh, yeah, he did. He wore a red coat and the the hunting hat and the whole. He did, and, and he would ride to the hounds. You know, riding to the hounds out in Ohio uh, or in in Illinois is is a little exotic. Uh, they used to use a lot of dogs around there, but they were, they were generally called rabbit hounds. <laughs> but right, and he did. He classically rode to the hounds, and every year the colonel would have, just like the baron did, you know, either the baron or the the duke or the earl, would have this yearly party for all the help. You know, this is an old, old, ancient feudal tradition. And even today in England, if you go in certain parts of England, you will find that the local earl, the local duke, will have a yearly day for the people of the hamlet. 
And they will play games. They will run around with eggs on spoons, and they'll do sack races, and they'll have the fattest mother contest. And, and they'll, yeah, they'll play a game of cricket, the fat guys versus the skinny guys. And you've, you've seen all this, Bob. It's wonderful, yeah. Well, the colonel did that in the Midwest. He did. And he would ride among all of his help as they're all gathered out there, all the people who wrote the paper and worked uh, any had any connection with the, with the organization. He would ride among them on his charger. And his uh, his grooms would distribute largesse, usually hot dogs and and uh, Eskimo pie bars and <laughs> stuff. Oh man! Uh, speaking of uh, uh, speaking of the dictatorial edit, Bar- baronial, of course, all the way. This is W O R A M at F M, New York. Yes, indeed. Uh, hit the little money button, will you? I spent a good deal of my time writing about the cultural explosion in what has been traditionally a cultural desert. That's Peter Bart, New York Times reporter, speaking from and about Los Angeles. The Los Angeles area is becoming an innovator in the arts. For example, plays that might not have gotten a chance even off-Broadway got a chance here and are moving from west to east. The uh, symphony orchestra commissioned four works by different composers. You have art galleries, some of them remarkable art galleries, an art museum with two new wings, you have the transformation of a city, which was a cultural non-entity, into a really impressive place. Important news to everyone who wants to be with it about developments in the arts. Find out more every day in the New York Times. If you're without it, you're not with it. For home delivery, call Murray Hill 70700. That's MU70700. Uh, speaking of the British, uh, we've got uh, with us tonight again, of course, is our usual won't, the Rover 2000. And believe me, I doubt whether there is. Would you agree with me, Bob? There, I doubt whether there is a more British car than the Rover. Oh, really? The, the, Rover, the Rover is unbending. They have for you. They, they will not compromise. And uh, I, I've talked to a couple of the Rover officials. And uh, you know the business of plastic upholstery and all that? They are incensed at the idea that a gentleman... A man of taste would uh, consent to put his posterior next to neoprene upholstery. <laughs> they really are, seriously. They have leather, man, and I mean leather. Good old English hide, you know. And uh, it's a superb automobile all the way down the line. If you want a car that lasts, man. You know, the English believe in things lasting. In fact, I know one guy who's had a suit for over 47 years. That's another thing. Have you ever seen those ancient suits guys wear in England? Some people, oh yeah, they pride themselves. You know, a sport coat that goes back to their grandfather's day. It's got twigs growing out of it and roots and vines, like a, like a compost heap with sleeves, you know. <laughs> so if you're, if you're looking for a really fine automobile, we would recommend the Rover 2000. At least investigate it. It's a great car. Uh, hit that, uh, b- hit the button again, Bob. Okay, let's go. Like the taste of real draft beer? Now you can take it home with you. Peels did it. Put real draft beer in 12-ounce cans. Try it yourself. You'll agree. It's really draft beer in a can. And it needs no refrigeration until you're ready to drink it. The only thing we didn't put in the can is the atmosphere of your favorite tavern. You don't, you don't want to hear any more... Uh reminiscences of Colonel McCormick and his effect on people out there. You don't hear much about this. I noticed a couple of books have come out recently about him. But you know, there's something that uh, it just occurred to me. 
that is rarely discussed or written up or recorded, and I think it's very important, and that is the effect that one or two men continually have on a single area of the country, and the effect, of course, they have on the image that is presented to the rest of the world about that part of the country. In other words, I'm sure that a lot of people who know nothing at all about Chicago, except that they see it once in a while in movies or old newsreels or something, uh, are of the impression that Colonel McCormick literally uh, represented Chicago. And, and many do. Oh, yes, many people think that, that the Midwest is a, is a bastion of conservatism. Uh, because they, they'd see the Chicago Tribune, or they'd hear about Colonel McCormick. Well, as a matter of fact, he was constantly at odds with the Midwest because it wasn't. Uh, the Midwest has traditionally been a bastion of utopians of one kind or another. Uh, I see recently somebody uh, republished a book, fascinating piece of work, too, called uh, Angel in the Forest. Uh, it's a history of some of the utopian movements in the Midwest. Uh, and now, now, if there's anything that is not conservative, it is a utopian concept of life. Uh, this, this, uh, this really uh, demands an entire restructuring of society itself. And all around me, when I was a kid, all around Indi uh, that part of Indiana, northern Indiana, all around me there were towns that were uh, basically, and had been basically, utopian in concept. In other words, somebody came out in the 1840s or something from... Uh, Massachusetts, where there was a certain conformity of religious attitude, or they came out from places like Pennsylvania, and they gathered a little flock around them, and they all got into the covered wagons and came out to Indiana and founded something called the New Harmony. Uh, that was one of the times. You ever heard of that one? Or New Friendship. Or they founded places called New Zion. And they're all over the area, and there are still remnants of it. That you go into these towns, and they still have a peculiar utopian attitude. You know, I, I don't know of anything. I haven't seen anything of the East anywhere. Uh, speaking of the utopian concept, and we, since we've got on this, we might as well go into it, that when I was a kid, one of the big things we would do on Sunday afternoon would be to get in the car, you know, the old, the old bit of uh, going for a ride, but we really had places to go for in a ride. It wasn't just going driving around the countryside. So once in a while, the old man would say, we're really going to go out for a long ride now, really a big one. We'll get up early in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock or something, and we'll get out on the road, and we'll drive to southern Michigan, which was about 75 miles from our home, around the lake, up, uh, up around the edge, and all, we'd follow the lake, you see, right, right around the edge of Lake Michigan. We'd drive through towns like Mishawaka, uh, Benton Harbor, St. Joe, and the whole point of it was we would be going to a utopian place just to walk around. There was a utopian community there. And I mean literally a utopian community. Uh, they, they sealed themselves off almost completely from the rest of the world. Uh, they dressed differently. And their architecture, believe me, you know, you think in terms of utopian, you think of the Amish or you think of, uh, oh, something like that. But this truly was a utopian concept. It was not an ancient fundamentalist concept, which is a different thing again. Uh, these people built a world that literally was in their own... They, they constructed a thing that had nothing to do with anything else around it. The buildings looked different. The uh, houses, the, the porches, everything looked different. 
the, the dresses, the clothes they wore, and it would be almost as if somebody were to say to you today, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's get in the car and we'll drive off to the land of the munchkins in Oz. <laughs> Uh, because uh, it was that different. Uh, to give you an idea, their houses, their buildings were all made of scroll work, like uh, almost out of the uh, or out of the 17th and 18th century Germanic fairy tale condition uh, tradition. You've seen the uh, yes, have you seen the uh, the old illustrations to things like uh, old uh, Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. Uh, the Grimm Brothers fairy tales, and it was it was like fairyland with all kinds of little curly cues and flowers and and little. Uh, uh, it's hard to describe it, but windows, for example, heart shaped windows, yeah, or or a window would be shaped like like a flower with petals, that kind of stuff, and the paint, the color of them. Now the color of these places, you couldn't believe it. Can you imagine a a bright blood red house, trimmed in gilt? I mean, gold, yeah. I mean, it was, it was wild, it was spectacular. Or else there would be one that would be bright green and it would be trimmed in silver all over. It's painted silver. And most of them were red and gilt. Uh, the, the town looked like a merry-go-round. And all around it were these trees. They had planted big weeping willow trees that hung over the whole thing. And it was surrounded by a fence. But the fence was the kind you see in fairy tales. It was all gilt and silver and had little uh, gargoyles and curly cues and little wings and little petals and vines growing up the whole thing and everybody would go there on a Sunday afternoon that is the people who went there would go just to walk around the grounds you would pay to get in uh, they would they would charge you I don't know a quarter or something and just walk around and it looked exactly like what you would think in terms of a paradise they cre and that was the whole premise of their religion they were creating an earthly paradise and nothing had any relationship to what was on the outside. And all the people would walk around, that is, the people who were part of this utopian community, uh, they would walk around in what looked like homespun clothes, almost like the kind that you see, not Amish, but more like, uh, oh, when you see pictures of elves, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they, they, they had funny little hats on their head that went, that went up to the top, a little peak thing, and... And they would walk around, and the girls would wear big, uh, the dresses that would sort of billow out, like you see pictures of Snow White. And the, it really was like visiting uh, a fairyland. And they had a, an amusement park, too, that was all, all part of that whole scene. And people would walk around this place all day long, and, and then they would get back in their car. You'd buy something to eat there. They had little stands, and you could buy things. But it was not a tourist attraction. It was literally a working utopian community. Now, I will award you a brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of that place. It was a very, very famous place, and I, it's still in operation. One thing, I'll give you a clue. They had a famous baseball team that traveled around the country, and it, it raised money for their utopian pursuits. And yeah, they really did. They had a ball team, and they were famous for one thing. The baseball players were famous for their giant beards. If you can imagine a ball team with huge beards, and they really had a good team. They, they went around, they, they played all the minor league teams, they used to beat them uh, everywhere. They had a great ball team. That's right. Now, you've often heard the phrase, House of David. That's, that's who it was. It was the House of David. But uh, how many times have you ever heard the House of David actually described? Now, they had a king. Yes. They had a king who 
created this whole thing, and, and uh, he was, his name was David. We often think of David referring to the Bible, but this was David. King David, he called himself. And, and uh, he had subjects. These people were subjects. It was an actual little monarchy, and they owned the ground, the land, and everybody who, who lived there were literally subjects of, this, of King David. <laughs> it was a wild seed. You didn't know that, did you? Well, all right. Now, that's, that's the kind of stuff that went around out, out there. There were all kinds. Now, this you certainly couldn't call it conservative. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I mean, you better, you better uh, de define your term conservative if you can call that conservative. Uh, yes, it could be called. No, it was not even archaic. It was, it was truly communal. Nobody owned anything, by the way, that, as far as I know. These are the, I'm, I'm, again, uh, I, I can stand corrected if you know more about it than I do. You probably do if, if you're an expert on, on American utopian communities. But uh, we understood that nobody owned anything and that when you joined this thing, you had to give all of your, your earthly, your worldly goods had to go into the communal pot. King David was in charge of everything. And you just didn't have anything. You, you, you'd live in a little house that you would build yourself. And uh, they would give you the supplies and the materials to do it, and you'd live there, and you would have a little... Uh, oh, and, they, and another thing, too, they were against all known forms of progress. They did not have electricity, as far as I know. I can stand corrected on that, but I know that they made their own things. They made their own shoes, they made their own clothes, and every man who lived there and worked there, would uh, he'd have a simple profession like that, like he'd be a shoemaker, or he would be a... A, a, a weaver, or he would make rugs, or something like that, and that was that was the utopian concept out there. Now that was one. Now, if we wanted to do something else, then instead of driving south and east around the lake up to uh, King David's little setup set there, we could go the other way. <laughs> we could drive. We could drive north and slightly west up past Chicago. There was another one there. Now, that one was an entirely different situation, and yet it, too, had a dictator. Oh, yeah, every one of these little utopian concepts. It's interesting to find how almost every utopian concept of life calls for an absolute ruling dictator, who, of course, is always described as being totally, uh, uh, completely beautiful. He's completely good. Uh, the good of the people is his only concern. Oh, yes, this is, this is part of the communal system. Uh, that is, communism always calls for this selfless man to run the scene. N not actually; they don't. They don't uh, say it in their, in their, uh, in their, in their treaty or their, in their covenant with the people who are part of it. But nevertheless, this is what evolves. And incidentally, this is one of the things that, if if not uh, consciously, at least subconsciously appeals to large numbers of people who are always looking for a father image. Maybe they didn't have one in their life. And so the idea of having this benign dictator who's in charge of everything and writes poetry is very, very appealing to them. And incidentally, a dictator, it's never called that. It's called the great statesman, the great father. Mao Zedong is an example. He's the great father of them all. And, and that's always, always interesting when you go to a country where they have one of these people. Uh, I've been to a couple of countries where they have a, an absolutely immovable, uh, irreplaceable figure at its head. Where have I been? Well, I've been in Yugoslavia. Have you ever been in Yugoslavia? They've got one there. I've been in Madrid. They have one there, too. And you will find that wherever you go, it almost, it almost begins to have the elements of a religion. 
uh, and he's not like a real man. He's he's more like an icon. He's he's like some kind of a some kind of a religious figure. And every place you go in these countries, you'll see great pictures of him everywhere. And people uh, uh, everywhere they 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 name their children for it. It's just like in other religious countries, like in say in strongly Catholic countries, you will find the children are constantly being named after religious figures. And you'll find that true in uh, in a country like. Uh, like Yugoslavia, or one of the countries where, where all the people, the only thing they know is this great man, this great man who is usually given credit for creating the country. He's El Benefactario, or uh, El Creatorissimo, or whatever the, or, you know, whatever the title is. Anyway, it refers to the fact that he made all of them. You know, it's almost like God. You know. It's a very, very fascinating thing. And so we could go around the other side of the lake, you see, if we, if we didn't want to go to see the House of David this time. We could drive up through Chicago, and we could go to another one. Now, this was uh, a very different kind. This was uh, uh, sort of a religious, uh, socialist, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe this one, except that it was more conventional and yet much further out, really, in a way, than the House of David. This was an operation that was a little town. It was a town of about, uh, oh, four or 5,000 people in, uh, in northern well, it was north of Chicago. It was in, it was what you, it's in that part of Illinois there, just north of Chicago, not too far from the lake. And they had an entire, the entire world there was created by one man. He, he wrote the textbooks, or at least he told them what they were going to have in the textbooks. In their schools, the schools were all devoted to his, uh, and it wasn't particularly religious. He'd even write the science textbook, for example. If you could, yes, oh yes, if you can imagine, say, uh, uh, Oh, uh, a situation where the, this man is given all knowledge. He has all knowledge in his head. And so naturally, if he's an all-knowledgeable person, naturally he could write the science book, he could write the book on botany, he could write the book on economics, he could write the religious text, everything, you see. And so he wrote the geographical textbooks, among other things, and they taught there, and it was held very strongly by all the people there, that the earth was flat. They believed completely that the earth was flat. And we used to drive up there just to look out of the window of the car to look at people who believed the earth was flat. <laughs> That's the truth. My, my, my father used to, once in a while, we would, you know, and, and they were always very sensitive about being put on, you see. And we would drive up there and we would stop at a gas station in this town. And my father would say, now look, he says, he would say to me and my kid brother, he says, now listen, don't you ask the man whether he believes the earth is flat. Now, he does believe it, but don't say anything to him about it. And so we would both look out of the window, and here's the guy. He's pouring the gas in the back of the Oldsmobile, you know. And my kid brother says, he thinks the earth is flat. Wow. Miss Shields. Miss Shields ought to talk to him. Miss Shields was our second grade teacher who was teaching us geography. You know, the earth is a globe and all that. Now, I have never seen the globe of a person in his office. I'd love to see the globe of a person who, you know, a globe... I'd like to see what the globe looks like of a guy who believes the earth is flat. I suppose like a record or something, you know, and <laughs> with a spindle through it. But uh, <coughs> they did. They, they, they believed that the earth was flat. And among other things, I recall, they believed that, that heaven, of course, you see, his concept also was that the rest of the world, the rest of the universe, anything else in the universe was revolving around the earth. Now, this is an old, old notion of many primitive peoples because all they know is the earth. And so they assume that everything revolves around the earth. It's not that the earth revolves around the sun. The sun revolves around the earth, you see. Everything revolves around the earth. 
Now, that leaves a lot of questions unanswered, see? So, so he answered them all by saying that heaven really was an illusion, and it was only 30 miles above the surface of the flat earth. And, uh, yeah, it was 30 miles above, and it was like a big blanket. Now, this is the way he describes stars. It was like a big, sort of a big, uh, kind of a, a screen, if you can imagine a screen hanging over this flat earth, and the stars were holes in the screen, is what he taught. <laughs> oh, yeah. <coughs> he had it all figured out. And I think he had the sun, I think the sun was about 17 miles above the earth. It, it was below that screen, see, because it was quite obvious. You could see this thing, see, and, and it would show up. And the way, I, 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 the technique of this kind of eludes me now, but I remember a lot of talk about it around. This is, you know, that they used to believe that the sun, the sun, of course, it, the earth remained stationary. The sun would travel, it would go to one end of the earth, which was flat. And it would go to the other, one end of the earth, and then it would shut off or something, and then go back and then start over again. <laughs> I don't know, it had some kind of a wild cockamamie ex uh, discussion of, of uh, how the sun and the earth world worked. But we would drive there. Now, remember this. We would drive there to see these people walking around. Now, they had a big sign when you came into town. Very fantastically big sign. I mean, so you couldn't miss it. Right by the edge of town, there was a sign that said absolutely forbidden no cigarette smoking allowed in this city so immediately when when people would drive through they'd have to throw this because they'd get arrested cop would come up say you smoke a cigarette in the car forget it you're in the slam they would just throw you in no cigarette smoking they did not allow silk stockings the people who walked around there did not allow silk. in other words the residents could not wear silk stockings that was considered immoral but the people who had silk stockings on, if you were driving through the town, you had to stay in the car. And it says, you must stay in the car if you're wearing <laughs> silk. So, yeah, so, you know, they had all these rules of all these things. That, and you could only drive at five miles an hour or something like that. Five or Very slow. Five or six miles an hour through town. And boy, did they enforce it. As a matter of fact, uh, this town was famous throughout the entire area as being a notorious speed trap. They claimed that the town supported itself by handing out tickets. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was considered kind of a religious contribution. But uh, that was, now that was, that was this one. Now, do you know the name of this man? He was very famous. No, his name was not Gregory Kirchhoff. That's a, that was an electrician. It was not Mr. Steinmetz, no, somebody else. <laughs> no, the name of this man was Glenn Voliva. Glenn Voliva. Now, that, that, those communities were all around out there. There was, uh, we'd go down to New Harmony, Indiana, and you'd get the same scene, uh, attenuated, but there it was. You'd go to New Jerusalem, Indiana, and uh, that was another one. Yeah, they had New Jerusalem there. And, and then, then, of course, the colonel, uh, getting back to the Colonel McCormick, he created a kind of uh, utopia outside of Chicago. It was in a place called Wheaton, Illinois. And he had this fantastic estate. And it was really almost in the sense of a, of a medieval feudal barony is what it really was. And the colonel had high fences and he had, he had serfs and he had dogs. And, and he, was famous, <coughs> he was famous too for another thing that he used to do. Uh, the colonel, the colonel would, would, del would deliver an in invitation. And once in a while when someone would get an invitation to go visit him at this place, it was like a royal command. It was, it was considered almost the equivalent of getting a knighthood. And if you were invited to come to this fantastic place 
as a visitor or as a guest. That was, that was tantamount to being invited to Buckingham Palace, literally. And he considered it that. Now, on the other hand, he hated the English. He continually railed against the English. And he lived more like an Englishman than any Englishman would ever have the guts to do in this day and age. He was right out of the pages of Bertie Wooster. And, and not only was he out of the pages of Woodhouse, he was also out of the pages of Kipling. Oh, yeah, he was a true Kipling as you know. His idea, I remember, you know, speaking of Kipling, his, his idea, of course, was always to go and quell the natives. <laughs> you know, that was a, it's literally, he felt this. As he, and, and he used to do a radio program. Of course, he owned this great big radio station out there. Now, I'll, I'll award you another brass fake the gee with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of his radio station. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, his radio station referred to his newspaper, and the radio station was WGN. And, oh, yes. And, of course, uh, the, the call letters had a special meaning. They stood simply for world's greatest newspaper. <laughs> Simple candor. And, <laughs> and you'd get this paper every morning. It had a big American flag on the top of it. Boy, it was in red, white, and blue colors, the whole thing. And uh, that's where it took off. And I remember when the Colonel, he used, to, he used to have these big radio programs. He, he was exceedingly old-fashioned in his taste, fantastically old-fashioned. And he had a lot of money, of course. And so his idea of a radio program was to put out on the show, on his radio station, a two-hour version of The Chocolate Soldier or a two-hour version of The Merry Widow. And, yeah, he had, a, he had a stock company that were always doing the Merry Widow or the Chocolate Soldier or the Student Prince. And in between acts, he would come on with these interminable discussions. He would talk himself. And he had the most completely bitter accent. You'd hear him, when I was standing before the front lines, just outside the, the Verdun sector, I spoke to my brigadier, and I said, <laughs> he sounded more like an Englishman, believe me, than Alastair Sim does. Uh, he was right out of, the, out of the pages of C. Aubrey Smith. And as you know, C. Aubrey Smith, believe me, uh, he quelled natives all over the world in his movies. And this was, this was Colonel McCormick. <laughs> I don't know how I got on this subject here, but I hope it hasn't been boring. <laughs> This is WOR Radio, your station for news.